Welcome to the Inspired Peak Performance Flowcast. Drop in as we dive deep into the epic moments of high performance from around the world, where we aim to unlock the valuable insights into their vision and the strategies applied in the pursuit of their own version of greatness. We'll discuss the experiences that led them there and what state they were in when they arrived. I'm your host, Paul Price, and this is The Flowcast. Today, I'm grateful to have the opportunity to have a conversation with Alistair McCaw. Alistair is an expert in creating world-class mindsets, high-performance leaders, and winning team cultures, and has worked with some of the biggest names across many different sports and organizations. As a consultant, author, and keynote speaker, Alistair, for the past 25 years, has extensively traveled the world, sharing his insights, experience with some of the top leaders, performers, teams, and organizations globally. This impressive list includes Olympic gold medalists, Grand Slam champions, Fortune 500 companies, NCAA colleges, and professional sporting teams. As an author, Alistair's books are a must-read for those looking to find inspiration and an edge. The Seven Keys to Being a Great Coach, Becoming a Great Team Player, Developing a Winning Attitude and Mindset, and Champion-Minded, which has also now been followed up with an online Champion-Minded course. For more information about Alistair, you can find him at alistairmccord.com and his podcast at Champion Minded. For more information on Inspired Peak Performance, you can find us at inspiredpeakperformance.com or on Instagram at inspiredpeakperformance. Get ready for a great conversation with the man himself as we go deep into his childhood, mindset and his possible untapped love of salsa dancing. Not to mention an abundance of wisdom he has collected in his experience. Sit back and enjoy. Alistair McCaw, welcome to the Flowcast, mate. Paul, it's good to see you. You too, buddy. It's uh, It's been a while since I've seen you face-to-face, and uh, I know we catch up once in a while, but... Um, well, you're, but you know, even though it's well. probably been um, a year, it seems just like yesterday because, you know, we've been living in this strange time and, and obviously with COVID and so on and so forth and you know we were just talking there all fair about uh you know organizing something back in February and it's just it's just bizarre how time has gone in in these last few months you know yeah yeah it was uh yeah everything everything just shifted so quickly and uh it, it was I mean it, it does seem like yesterday you and I were talking about um you being on tour here and and uh me helping you arrange a few of those events and um yeah and obviously that we had to cancel was, it yeah so i was so looking forward to that you know with you and i knew it was going to be a great time and um and, and you know we had a, a really a good turnout as well for that but you know it's going to happen definitely in the future again once all this is settled um yeah. you know i think you were one one of the guys as well that suggested why don't you do a virtual online one and and i you know this is the thing right now and you know i'm going to hit it off the bat right now is one of the things I've been struggling with this period and I'm not afraid to say it is the the human contact. Yeah. And that is why I love conferences, seminars, workshops, groups together because it's that energy of being around people. You know, you can do virtual, you know, and this is how we're having to do it right now, virtual conferences and webinars and so on. I get it. But 
I would rather wait a year and, and, and just be around those people because that's where the energy is. Yeah, it's, it is, it is amazing. I think it's been a big eye opener for many people, especially in the field of, um, similar to what you're doing, where you are around a lot of people, even people with workplace environments where they're building relationships, that connection that, that we, that we require as human beings, I think is, is ever as much, um, prevalent now is what it's ever been but i think we're just sort of waking up to that going wow that's 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 a that's a basic human need like we need that connection to thrive you know and um and as you talk about that group stuff and and you know being the flow cast you know there's there's individual flow and there's group flow like that feeling that energy you get when you're presenting at conferences and uh and things and you're working with teams and environments and group flow is you know known to be more powerful an experience than an individual flow. And um, so I think that's, you know, kind of relates to what you're seeing. That energy is, it's so powerful, so impactful and, and it can motivate and inspire you for days on end once you experience it. And if you can kind of collectively get that throughout the weeks and days and months of your, of your life, you'll, you'll kind of ride this wave that, you know, increases your happiness and your well being overall. And uh, so it's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's something I fear right now is that, you know, we're, we're obviously, we have adapted to um, working from home, virtual, you know, as we spoke about webinars, uh, more pod- podcasts like this, for example. However, um, there's nothing that can replace the human connection. And I, like you just said there now, flow is about energy. For me, you know, I wrote, a, wrote about it in Developing a Winning Attitude and Mindset that, Everything is about energy, the, the mm-hmm. energy you have, the energy you give, the energy you allow in, in your life, the people around you. Everything is about energy. When somebody walks into a room or you're, you know, even, even you can feel a certain energy almost virtually as well of, of how that person is. So for me, everything yeah. is, is, is energy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's powerful. And it's, uh, and I think it's, it, it's something to, to, to harness and be aware of as well. Like it, it, it takes a level of awareness to be able to, to project that because, you know, we don't always show up, you know, in a great mood or in a, you know, there's, there's diff, different dynamics in our lives that will influence the way we feel and think at any given moment. But we also, you know, and, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this. So, you know, with that being said, how we show up to provide the energy into a, an environment when you're not feeling your best, like, you know, what's your thoughts on, are we in total control to be able to switch that on a dime to be able to flip it and go, I can, I can control this. I'm in control of my mind and this is how I'm going to flip it. So is it, you know, maybe, maybe give us an insight into, you know, some suggestions that you have for people to, that can do that. Um, and maybe what you do for yourself to, to bring the energy when you might feel it a little bit lower than normal. Yeah. And that's a great question because I have been experiencing those, those challenges these past few months, you know, um, people might see me as positive and motivating and adding value, but you know, I have the same feelings as, as anybody else of waking up sometimes and not feeling motivated. Um, not feeling like, like getting out of bed. I'm exactly the same, even though I have a purpose and I have a vision and all these things, which, which definitely help to get me out of bed, bed in the morning. Um, But, but, you know, getting back to your first question there, it's for me, you know, can relate it to skill. You know, you were one of the best squash players in the world, for example. So you had to develop your skills over the years of 
you know, um, the certain elements of it, the fundamentals, the, you know, everything that goes with, with squash, the footwork, the patterns, everything. Yeah. And mind is very, very much the same is that it's, uh, it's, it's a skill. You've got to train the mind. You've got to develop the mind at the same time. And it's got to be intentional. You just can't become positive by hoping to be positive or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, you, you know, we live, unfortunately, and this is not being pessimistic. We live in a very negative world in terms of the news is negative. And what you scroll through Twitter and so on and so forth is negative news the whole time. And if we just let that filter or we just let that, you know, inside of us the whole time, that's what's going to come out. So it is definitely about training your mind. It's definitely about, uh, you know, I always say every morning you wake up, you get to choose your attitude. And I think that is, you know, I don't know if, you know, if, if we can see, if uh, the listeners can see this on video or not, but, you know, my shirt there says excellence is an attitude. Yeah, I and love that. that is something I remind myself of daily. It's not just a, a phrase that, that looks cool and, and sounds good. It's really something that I remind myself of is I'm aiming for excellence and the clients I work with, I'm, I'm helping them aim for excellence, but it's an attitude. That's where it starts. Attitude can simply be another word for mindset. It's how you decide to do it, but you've got to train it. You've got to be intentional about it. So, you know, those are, those are other areas that we can go into with regards to the tools to training uh, a positive mindset, for example. So yeah, yeah, it's a skill. It's a skill, Paul. It's ab absolutely a skill. And it's something that's, uh, that I've been hyper aware of, especially through the last um, 12 months of sort of coming out of my role at um, Squash Australia as a national coach and moving into a, trying to figure out where I, where I, where I'm going from that point. Like not really like leaving a role that I was highly passionate about, um, loved, and moved on then trying to find what's next for me and coming out of that sort of environment, having to flip my mindset a little bit, but working on it and then introducing practices of gratitude, mindfulness, sleeping better, all these things, which is a, a difficult challenge with a, uh, a, a two year old, <laughs> um, yes. through that period. So from one to two and, um, but just introducing really simple, positive little changes that make a huge impact. But they're they're like working on a skill. They're like working on a on a on a drop shot. They're working on your on your on a skill that you actually uh, yeah. acquire through repetition. You know, if you don't practice these things, they will not become a skill. You will not be skillful at them. And it's always fascinated me and and sort of blown blown me away a little bit that. And, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, but my take on it is that there are so many athletes out there who will always say, you know, it's, it's sort of 20% physical, 80% mental, but yet they're spending 80% or 90% on the physical and skills, but next to 0% on the mental stuff. Yeah. And then if you take into, you know, if you go into um, organizations, uh, leadership and things like that, that's a similar thing. Like, how many people are actually really training their mind to get better and, yeah. to, and to be more positive. So, you know, I'd be interested in your take on in, you know, your experience through that. Is that a fair assessment that, that I'm putting out? There yeah, absolutely. you know, I was, I was visiting a, a good friend of mine here in Florida th uh, this morning, who's opened up a, a tennis academy about five miles up the road. 
um, Roger Anderson, his wife, Shani, uh, used to be a pro on the tour top 30. So they've got an academy up here in, in, uh, in Boynton Beach. And, uh, you know, there was four kids there, very good level, 16, 17-year-old kids. And, you know, I watched for about 20 minutes and I watched the body language and I watched how I listened to the words that, you know, one or two of them were saying, like, I always do this or I can't hit a backhand today or these type of things. And I said to him, you know, I said to the one kid, turn your cans into cans and watch how things change. And they almost look at you with like a blank stare, you know what I mean? Like it's another fancy quote or whatever. But, um, you know, it's, I, I always give players, so, you know, you're going to say, okay, good. So how do you help somebody like that? Well, I always give players uh, goals in their mm-hmm. practice from a mindset point of view. So for example, today, I want you to score yourself out of five on your self-talk because I can't control it. Yep. Um, I said, I will be able to see and have an idea of what your self talks like by looking at your energy, by looking at your body language, by looking at your attitude. That's how I can tell what your self talk is in a way. But when when I spoke about the previous question being intentional about it, okay, well, how do you become more positive on the court or, uh, or just in life, for example, is that you're, that you self-reflect on it. You're intentional about it, about giving yourself, for example, a score out of five. How was my self-talk today on the court? Okay, four. It was good. And usually when your self-talk is good, other things fall into place. Your, your attitude is good. Your energy will probably be good. Your body language is good because your mind was telling you. So it's, you know, it's as simple and as hard as, as saying, you know, the, the quality of your self-talk, the quality of, of the words that you're using and saying to yourself will determine your results and your, your behaviors and your actions, for example, you know, um, but I, I just find a, a lot of, especially junior athletes just don't grip this enough of how important that mindset is, but they, you know, here's the thing, we can give them the work, but at the end of the day, you have to do the work, yeah. you know, Paul, you know, when I would watch you coach there and working with some of the best juniors in the world, you know, you're telling them the right things and you're giving them the tools. But at the end of the day, it's up to the individual. It's up to the individual to make that choice to go, okay, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to commit to this. I think commit is a good word um, here is, you know, are you committed to it? Are you all in, for example? So I don't know if that answers your question. No, I think you touched on some really important factors around it because I found that, you know, the, the tough thing with the psychology part of life and sport is that for most part, it's invisible. Like there's no, it's really hard to measure. Does this work or does it not work? You know, and, and obviously science and research and things now, especially with all the advancements, we're way ahead with actually being able to monitor some of the, the brain changes that actually happen when you, practice gratitude for, or you have an opt- optimistic attitude. Your, your locus of control is about, you know, life. Um, I'm in control of my life. Life doesn't happen to me. It happens for me. You know, a really sort of a growth mindset as um, Carol Dweck would, would call it. But, um, but you know, getting back there, sorry, Paul, if I can just that's jump right, in. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Your mindset, you know, working on your mindset and your skill is very much like, you know, if I was to say to you, Paul, if you decided to skip a month of, of practicing squash, what would happen? Yeah, you 
you, you would get a little bit rusty, right? You would Absolutely. maybe your, your timing wouldn't be there. You, you know, you're, you know, there. And then the same with your mind is that if you're not intentional with it every day, practicing it like your skills, be it playing good guitar, be it, being at painting, be it singing, playing, playing a sport, it's not going to, it's not going to get better. Yeah. And so, so what's your theory? Why aren't people practicing this so diligently when the impact is so phenomenal? Because it's difficult staying consistent. And I think, it, I think it comes down to instant gratification of, Oh, I've, I've done this work for a few months with this psychologist or I've worked with Paul or Alistair, whoever it may be, and they're expecting to win. They're expecting all of a sudden magic to happen. And like any other skill, it's not like, okay, it's almost like me saying, all right, I don't play squash, but I'm going to go play for a month. I'm going to work on my fitness and and I expect to be playing uh, at, a, at a high level. It's just unrealistic. I think they think the same thing with when it comes to the mindset as well of, of okay, I've done these exercises, I'm reading uh, positive books, uh, reading all these quotes. That's nice. That's filling yourself with good energy and positivity. However, you have, again, you have to do the work. You have yeah. to be committed to the work over months, years and years of it, for example. So I would put it down to instant gratification. Uh, you know, we, we want results now because, you know, I, I've heard a lot of time, you know, this, this positive stuff isn't working or, uh, you know, they, they're very reliant on the results following something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I think the instant gratification is a, is a huge thing and it does take, you know, a couple of years ago, you hosted me on your podcast and we, we talked about um, visualization and, and the impact that it had on my career as a, as a player and it, and it continues to have an impact on what I do today um, was rather phenomenal. But it took me, for me to really reap the benefit of that skill and really hone it and craft it, I would say probably took me three years of consistent practice to really sort of get to the other end where I, I just all of a sudden went boom. You know I mean? Yeah, three years might seem like a long time to other people, but that's a very short time in terms of, and I bet you were very intense in it, intentional in it. So it takes a long time, you know, um, you know, your, your episode on, on my podcast is one of my favorite because a few episodes later I had Bob Beeman, uh, Bowman, sorry, the coach of Michael Phelps. And, yeah. you know, I chatted to, to Bob a little bit about you as well. And I said, you know, how did Michael visualize? And he said he visualized from three ways. He visualized uh, himself in the pool. He watched, he visualized himself from sitting outside of the pool. So for example, in, in the stands watching. And the third thing, very interesting, interesting was that he visualized himself having a bad race. Because mm -hmm. when do we need visualization the most is when things aren't really going well. We can visualize and we chatted about this as well, Paul, and I picked yeah. your brain. You know, most people visualize the perfect race, the perfect uh, squash squash match or the perfect whatever. And it's it's not it's not unrealistic because there's uncontrollables. There's your, your opponents. There is um, a, a false start or maybe you ate something bad. So there's so many things that can, can come in the way there. Now, all of a sudden, you're visualized only, uh, you know, seeing yourself on the it's podium, right. yeah. beating somebody. No, most of the work needs to be done when, what if this happens? What if that happens? Absolutely. And that was a big shift for me in the way I teach 
people to visualize now is that when I'd learned to visualize, it was all about it being perfect. And so when things were in flow and I was gaining it, gaining, it, it worked. But when those things that went wrong, bad decisions or perceived that I perceived to be bad decisions, you know, bit of contact from a play, whatever sort of threw me off track and took me outside my little focus bubble. I didn't, I wasn't really prepared as well to handle those things to get me back into focus or flow. And it sort of it, it irritated me. So that's now a part of what I teach, the, you know, athletes and people to do is that, okay, let's, let's get good at visualizing first and then let's start throwing the uncontrollables at you. Like what happens when you get that bad call? What happens when the umpire calls the ball out, but it was actually in, or, you know, these things that, you know, it might be a, an environmental thing. The funny bounce is a funny, you know, what's been thrown that you need to learn to handle with, mm. with, uh, with, with a really good attitude that keeps you on point on focus. And so that, that was a big shift in that conversation in the way that I now move forward with that. So, you so know, you know, yeah, exactly. You know, I don't think maybe some people realize, but visualization is mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it can be under, under that bracket, under that, that, um, you know, uh, heading of, of, of mindset, for example, is that visualization is very much a mental skill of, you know, uh, putting yourself in those places, putting yourself in those positions and being prepared for what if, you know, like um, Michael Phelps and the coach used to call it what if. Yeah. They'd play the game of what if you get water in your goggles? What if um, you're in lane eight because you had a bad poly, but you're always expected to be in lane four or five in the middle? all these scenarios of, of what if, and that's, I, you know, they, they really put down um, visualization, at a, you know, one of the key areas of why Michael was very successful because he visualized every, every scenario. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite powerful. But, um, but cool. Like, like that's all awesome. Man. And we'll probably, yeah, we're going to keep touching on mindset because it's such a, a passionate topic between the two of us. And, uh, and what we're, we, we love to talk about, but I want to talk a little bit more about you and, and your growing up. So, you know, what was your relationship with, with sport as a kid? Like what were the sports you loved? What were the things that you, who were your idols? You know, what, you know, what was your relationship with sport? Yeah, well, I, I was born in Northern Ireland. I lived there until I was six and then we immigrated to South Africa. So already I can, I had three old, older brothers who partook in different sports as well. So that was an advantage of being brought up in a sporty home. My parents uh, also played squash as well. Um, wow. I remember they would, yeah, they would play squash on a Thursday, Thursday night at, at the local club. And uh, so I was always around sporting environments from, from a very young age and always just wanted to play. Um, I wasn't good academically. I knew that from a very young age, but sport was my my outlet sport was my energy. And, you know, from a young age, I think eight, nine, I took up tennis, wanted to be a tennis champion. And talking about visualization, I I really, without even knowing what visualization was at eight, nine years old, um, I was visualizing myself playing at Wimbledon, playing at US Open, playing against uh, Boris Becker or Andre Agassi because they were the, the, the players that were coming through at the young age. And I didn't even realize that I was visualizing at a young age. Um, you know, it, I can, did you have like the, you know, in the backyard, your, your backyard all of a sudden turned into the Wimbledon arena and stuff like that. Like yeah, my I mean, brother I, and I used to play 
So I was Stefan Edberg. He was Mats Verlander. And we yeah. used to go at it. We used to play the Wimbledon final in our backyard <laughs> there in St. Albans, Victoria. Yeah, <laughs> it was your imagination. Yeah, definitely the backyard was was um, a lot of heated cricket uh, contests and soccer and rugby and, you know, there was all types of sports, water polo. I was yeah. the youngest as well, so I'd get beat up and, and I believe that's what made me a, 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 a tough athlete as well as I wasn't afraid of, of you know, rolling with, with the big guys, so to say. But, you know, there was a tennis club that was about, you know, two kilometers from my house and I remember at that age of eight, nine, running to the tennis court each afternoon with my racket in my hand and two tennis balls. And there were, there were two balls that you wouldn't even give your dog, to be honest, because we couldn't afford fancy equipment and tennis balls. You know, we were four right. boys. I would get my clothes passed down to me from, from my brothers. So I'd be wearing shoes that were two sizes too small and so on. I didn't know. I mean, you, you're a kid. Yeah. And I would sneak under the fence at the tennis club once everybody had gone and hit against the wall. And uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I got chased away from the club and um, and so on and so forth. But here's a very fascinating thing as well, Paul, is, and again, I was a kid. We couldn't afford coaching and I knew that. So what I'd do is I would sit alongside the courts where there was coaches working with other kids and listen to them, what they were telling these kids. And then, um, you know, later on when nobody was there, I would work on what that coach had told that kid. Yeah. Wow. And, that was at the age of 11 or 12, maybe. So, you know, for example, C-shape with your forehand, I would remember that from what the coach told the kid, and I'd go, okay, C-shape with your forehand, or toss the ball at, at one o'clock. Okay, I'd go and throw, throw 100 balls at one o'clock. And no, I had no parents pushing me or telling me or whatever. It was just instinctive that I, would, I just wanted to get better. I have no idea where it came from, um, but I wanted to be a champion at a young age, Visualization was already in place without me even knowing what it was. Goal yeah. setting, I would write things and stick them above my bed. Um, I even, a funny story, I even remember cutting, cutting out a picture of Rocky, Rocky three, I think it was, and he was fighting Ivan Drago. I think it yeah. was three or four. I think four. Three. Rocky uh, four, I think. Yeah. Against Drago. And um, I cut my head uh, off a photo, a family photo, yeah. and stuck it on top of Rocky's head. And my parents came home. I was super proud to show them of this. And they realized I'd cut my head out of one, of one of the family photos. So you can just imagine that it didn't go down too well. But those were the crazy things that I think back about. It's like, wow, you were already like in that frame of mind at, at a young age. They're like, you know? they're like defining moments of like projecting that sort of level of success that the vision that you had for your life is just, you know, I want to be a champion and, and whether it's your face on Rocky's body knocking Drago out or it's imagining being the superstar tennis player. But fascinating that you, you had the inst instincts to go, I want to, I want to learn to get better. So I, I'm, I'm going to go and place myself nearby a, a coach just so I'm in earshot to, to gather that information and go away and work on it. I mean, there's probably not many 9, 10, 11 year old there's probably not many 18 year olds that would actually have that awareness to go, what can I, where can I find the edge? What can I do that can, to, can raise the bar for me today? And that's one of those things. And, and, and that, that instinct to do that is, is amazing. So, yeah. So, so, I, I, so, so you want, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I just didn't really need anybody to push me or tell me, you know, it was, yeah. it was more my parents saying to me, you know, 
do you need to do so much? Do you need to always be, you know, doing that? And, and so it was a completely the opposite of not pushing me to do something more like saying, okay, you need to do a little bit less. And, uh, you know, uh, so yeah, it was, uh, I'm very, I'm very thankful that I had that at a very young age and obviously, um, you know, put it to good use later on. Yeah, absolutely. So let's fast forward. So the, 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 the uh, world champion, uh, tennis career obviously didn't work out, but you did have quite a uh, phenomenal and successful triathlete career. Yeah, so actually, how, did, how did you get from that tennis to triathlon? Because they're two different beasts altogether. Yeah, it was actually triathlon at first, and then it was duathlon where I had, had more success because my swimming right. was, was terrible. Um, I so, and, I, I and I didn't enjoy it either. I just didn't enjoy swimming. So I was like, why am I doing this when I'm not? So I, I went more into duathlon, which I competed in five world championships and um, won my age group at the USA Powerman as well, uh, a few years back as well here in, here in America. So um, how it happened was, like you said there, I was 14. I'd reached actually a very good level in tennis in South Africa. I was ranked 11 in the country. And that's wow. without coaching, that's self-coaching. All the kids around me were coached and, and you know, were getting sponsors yeah. and so on and so forth. And I just remember, like, there was one day where all three of my rackets, there were no strings in there. I'd worn my toe through the, my shoes because, you know, I was, I was wearing cheap shoes. And I couldn't play because I had no rackets and I had no, because we just couldn't afford to, to sustain it. So anyway, I thought, you know what? I'm going to take up a sport where I don't need any equipment and I took up running and I worked on my running, um, got on the cross country team, the track team and trained pretty, pretty hard. I worked obviously in South Africa as well. I would compete against the black runners who are obviously world known as the best runners. Mm -hmm. And at 16, I won the under the South African national title in the 16 5k road championships, uh, which, wow. Which, which, I mean, I ran a time of 15.08 at, at 16 years, age, uh, years of age for 5K. So yeah. That sounds like my 1K time. <laughs> yeah, pretty much mine now. <laughs> yeah, when I, look, when I run a 5 now and I look back and I go, good gracious, how did I run that, like, in that time? And, um, it, seems and like, then, it seems like the art of impossible, like, when you think back about... Yeah, what you did. ...to do as an athlete and go, how the heck did I do... 23, 24, 400s, 75 yeah. on, 75 off. Yeah. Like that is, that's, that's ridiculous. But yeah. Yeah, sorry. it is. That is. I mean, I don't think I'd be able to run one of those now, but nah. um, so I think I had a, you know, I think I had a, a muscle strain or something happened to me. So, um, you know, I said to, we had a running coach who volunteered. We didn't have to pay him at the club and his name was Kippy Norman and he worked at a bank and he said, um, well, listen, borrow my bike just to, you know, keep fit. And I said, okay. And I said, I got on the bike and rode and after four days, I was like, Hey, I like this. And wow. he said, well, you, you know, you can keep my bike. And, you know, I did newspaper rounds. I was going to pay, pay him back for the bike, kept the bike, uh, got into my first duathlon, loved it. This was at about 17 years, years of age and didn't look back. Um, at 18 and 19, I won two national titles in the juniors. I captained South Africa to, uh, to the world championships as a junior. So wow. it just kept, kept rolling like that, you know. But I think at the end of the day, Paul, it was came down, you know, 
I, I say this humbly, but I probably could have taken up any sport, but because I was just the work ethic, the mindset of like just going and not like conceding or, or you know, just persisting. Yeah. Um, I think that's really at the end of the day what it takes. You know, you can learn skills. Yeah. Yeah. It, but it's interesting enough. So where, where do you think passion comes into it? You know, if we think about, you know, as a squash player, we kind of always get, you know, we meet people and say, oh, you played professional squash. Da, da, da. Why didn't you play tennis? And it always comes from a monetary value type thing. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, you're right. If I equated my results in squash to what those results would equate to in tennis, then my financial situation would be a lot different um, today. And my lifestyle might be a little bit different, but I wasn't passionate about tennis. So I potentially could have developed and I can hit a decent tennis ball and I probably could have developed a good tennis game, but I don't think I would have had the level of success in another sport because squash just grabbed me. Like the moment I started it, it was like, I had to do it. It was just, it was the thing that gave me the, that flow, that thing that where I could just lose myself in the moment and, and just be and do it. And, and I loved it. And it gave me so much back that, um, so, you know, so how much do you believe like finding that passion in what you're doing, regardless whether it's sport, business, art, you know, whatever it is, how important is that to success? Yeah. I don't believe you find passion. I believe passion finds you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I can't say to you, okay, Paul, I want you to uh, take up um, croquet and I want you to be passionate about it. And you'd be like, okay, I'll give it a try and we'll see how it goes. I can't make you be passionate about it and you can't make yourself be passionate about it. Yeah. For me, for me, your, your passion finds you. So, you know, you know, when someone says to me, well, you know, I don't have a passion. I said, well, that's not true. I said, what do you love to do? Well, I like to watch movies and I like to paint and I, okay, you have some passions, you have some interests, you know, what is something, and this is where it really lines up with flow and, or in the zone or whatever you want to call it is where you just get lost in time. Yeah. You know, my, my mom, for example, gets lost in time painting. That's her passion without her knowing it because yeah. she just gets lost in time. So yeah. I would say, Paul, you, you don't find your passion. Your passion finds you. Yeah. And so I guess you just got to expose yourself to enough things to allow that passion to find you. So I mean, if you sit in your room and going, I don't have a passion, I'm not passionate about anything and you're not, exposing yourself to experience you are actually never going to find that thing that you can lose yourself 100%. in which is uh, that's, why, that's why it's you know it's important you know to make a bucket list or say you know i'm going to do one thing a week that scares me or or you know i'm going to try something that one of my friends does that i've never done before go try it i mean when i when i had mary pierce and mary mary pierce is a good friend of mine who obviously was also number three in the world in, in, in tennis and a two-time grand slam champion yeah. And how did she fall into tennis was that she, her friend, I think there were 10 or 11. She started pretty late by the way, in, in terms of developing as a, as a, as an athlete. And, um, she went to go play at a friend's house and her friend had tennis practice that afternoon and she had to go along and she was sitting watching her friend and, you know, as a kid probably playing, uh, while her, while her friend was getting tennis lessons. And one of the coaches said, Hey, do you want to come hit some balls? And that's where her passion started for tennis was that, you know, she put herself in a position 
you know, to, to be there in the environment and say, okay, I'll, I'll hit some tennis balls. I, you know, she was probably scared. She was probably like Nervous. anybody else. Like, oh, I'd, I'd rather not be there. That is how you find your passion is you put yourself in environments that you're maybe a little uncomfortable with. Like, yeah. you know, if someone said to me, Hey, Alistair, do you want to go, go to salsa dancing? I would be like, Man, I really don't like that. Well, have you tried it? No. Well, how do you know? It's because I'm probably, my ego is probably talking and I'm probably scared of looking like a fool on the dance yeah. floor, for example. So, I, you know, it's, it, it comes down to that. So is that, is that something that you want me to hold you to, Alistair? Is that something that we're going to have a little bet on that uh, you're going to try salsa dancing now just to, get, to see if you can ex expand your passion? <laughs> I think many have tried and failed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. My wife would love to get me out for salsa lessons. And uh, I'm not going to let her listen to this podcast now because uh, <laughs> she might go, well, hey, you don't know if you don't try it. Um, exactly. exactly. But is it like just, just touching on Mary Pierce there, um, who was one of my favorite tennis players as a kid growing up. I watched a lot of tennis. Sampras was my uh, tennis idol. Like I loved Sampras. Um, and he was part of the inner hero that I created, um, who I showed up on a squash court. But, um, but that, that moment of Mary Pierce, that, that coach, that coach that just turned around and said, Hey, you want to come and hit some, some balls? Like that little moment there. And similar to what your story was about that guy going, Hey, why don't you borrow my bike? Why don't you keep my bike? Like they seem like subtle little things, but there's so many people in the world that, provide people with those little pivotal moments that define the rest of their life or lead them on a path of their passion and purpose. And they're insignificant moments generally that just sort of go by the wayside. Like a 10 year old girl who was at a, there because she had to be there and a coach going who she's never met before saying, Hey, do you want to come hit some balls? And she never done it. Never done. Like that in itself for the, for, for the little girl to go, sure. I'll have a crack. I mean, that's optimism. That's a mindset thing that, that is, that has been instilled in her, that person to go, yes. Cause it would have been easy for her to go, nah, no, I, I don't want to, I don't know how to do it and I don't want to fail and I don't want to do this. Those little moments are so impactful and it's, it's, it's why we've got to say yes to things. Yeah. Even when and, and like lean into that fear a little bit and just have a crack. Cause you just, you know, I mean, like the, the sliding door moment right there for Mary Pierce and potentially for yourself. Um, yeah. It, it just came out of nowhere. But, and that's why I feel, that's why I feel parents should expose their kids to as many different activities as, as possible. Not just you, you as a parent loved soccer or, or rugby and now you want your kid to do that. Yeah, sure. Let them, let them try it out, but expose your kid to as many activities, be it singing, dancing, gymnastics, team sports, individual sports, and let them choose what they love to do because there's no better gift you can give a kid is, is a passion to do something and do it well because those things flow into other areas. Having passion like for you and squash, it taught you discipline. It taught you work ethic. So the, the, the bounce off effect from that later on is massive because yeah. you found passion at a young age, for example. 
Yeah. So that's the advantage is let your kid find something they love. The big mistake, and we know this, Paul, is that more than 70% of kids drop out of sports before the age of 14 because they don't like what they do. There's maybe been too much pressure, burnout. Maybe they're not even in a sport they, they wanted to be in in the beginning. And that's yeah. sad because that can turn them t- completely away from sports. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's. They've just had a bad damaging. experience. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you see it. You see it a lot, unfortunately, and that's the thing. And, and, and similar to to that, you know, I was my parents always gave me the the green light to try different sports. You know, I played basketball, AFL footy, cricket, soccer at school, squash, racquetball, a bit of tennis. You, go. you know, that's and such a good I also run. believe that all that. Well, that also allowed me to become a good athlete at the thing that I found passion in. So, but, um, but look, I just want to move on quickly because I know, you know, I just want to be mindful of time and, 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 and what you got. I've got a list of questions here and I haven't asked you one of them yet, <laughs> but, uh, but, but the conversation, what's that? That's pretty much how my podcasts go. And you know what? It's, it's completely cool because I always think, you know, this is where it's, this is where it's going. Great. You know, um, that's, some of the yeah. best podcasts are always, always never planned, you know? And, and that's, that's the whole thing. And that's the whole point of calling the flowcast is that we're just going to go with the flow. We'll just let it go. Yeah. And if oh, I need to pull back on some questions I've got there. But, but I do want to touch on where you're at today. Now, now you've, you've written four books. You've got seven keys to being a great coach, becoming a great team player, um, champion-minded, and you've also just released a champion-minded course, which is on your website, which, uh, which looks phenomenal. And then your latest one, I believe, is developing a winning attitude and mindset. Um, so what led you to write a, write a book and in the first place and then, you know, and then to continue on to write another three? Like, what's your process for writing? How do you enjoy it? What, you know, does it get you any flow? What does it bring you? Yeah. You know, I believe we all have a story and we all have... A, a unique story. Your your story is unique. My story is unique. I don't have the same experiences like you and vice versa. So we all have different experiences. But the funny thing is, is that we don't think our experiences are interesting to other people or we don't think our journey is interesting to other people as where it is. Late and go, you know what? I also went through that. I didn't realize like, you know, I thought I was the only one that was experiencing that, for example. And, and just while we're on it, I'm just sidetracking for like 30 seconds here is that during this pandemic right now, um, you know, I'm also having uh, strugg- struggling with certain times of the day and motivation and so on and so forth. So you, please, you're not alone. Anybody out there is listening, thinking that, you know, that guy has it all together and positive and so on and so forth. You know, yeah. it's, it's a challenging time for all of us and we've had to, had to adapt to it. But Absolutely. getting back to it, writing was actually never a passion of mine or something like I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to write. I just thought, I want to share my story. I want to share my, I felt um, my first book, Seven Keys to Being a Great Coach, was what do I really feel are the keys to being a great coach? Because I've been around so many great coaches. I've been around a lot of great athletes. And, you know, I've been very, very privileged to, to do that from a very young age, from my early 20s. And I thought, what are the commonalities? What are the things I've seen? And that's when I started putting, you know, the old term pen to paper or, or finger to keyboard. And just started writing. And, you know, here's the thing as well. It's like a skill is it might be exciting in the beginning, but it becomes a chore 
you know, as in being committed, there's the word again to writing two pages a day or sitting down and writing a chapter. It's not easy in the beginning. It's exciting, but you know, the process, like when you're in it, like, Oh my gosh, what have I got myself into? You know? Um, but it's funny. I just, after I'd finished the book and had the response and, you know, people were very positive about it. I, that's where I thought, you know, champion minded. What about athletes? What do athletes need at a, especially a young age? How do you deal with cheaters? How do you deal with, um, uh, you know, pressure? How do you deal with all these, all these things that I had questions of as a kid and the brains behind champion minded was a little bit of my own story of, you know, I, I wasn't the most skilled kid. I wasn't the most talented, but I knew if I worked on the things that required no talent, work ethic, attitude, all these things, I would do well. So that's the message I was trying to pass on there. Plus also um, inspiration for champion minded, which has been the best selling book out of all, all of my four was okay. I have these mental challenges like anybody else, but I don't want to pick up a scientific book you know, or something that's very complicated. I don't want to know how to think with what side of the brain, just give me practical solutions of how I deal with feeling nervous on the court. Um, how, what should I do 20 minutes before I play my match? Practical things. And that's, those were the brains behind champion minded. So I would say it was the easiest book to write because it was just experiences of what yeah. if this, what if that. Um, becoming a great team player, obviously with team culture, uh, which is a great passion of mine now is leadership and culture, as you know. Yeah. And, yeah. I want to um, get into that with you a bit. Yeah. And then obviously winning attitude and mindset is, you know, for, for all walks of life, it doesn't matter what you do. It's all about developing a winning attitude and mindset of, of choice. And as we spoke at the beginning of this episode of, of, um, uh, putting in the work, being consistent, being disciplined yeah. to every day intention behind it yeah yeah awesome yeah and they're, and they're great reads and i recommend them to to everybody to to check out so so on the back of that um thinking about your own experiences and and moving now so you, you've kind of come from a you work with a lot of athletes on the physical aspects of their performance earlier uh, earlier on in your career and now you've moved into the more the mindset and now you're heading into sort of leadership culture even within organizations and big organizations, not just in the sporting environment, but in a corporate environment also. Now I'm interested from your perspective, like how important is a culture to an organization or a team? And what are the char characteristics that you look for that um, sort of ensure the success and the kind of the group flow energy of, of an environment? Because group flow is a quite a powerful thing. And there's a lot of triggers that can trigger that, but I'm, I'm curious for your, from your experience, what are the things, the key things that when you walk into an organization, you go, if you have this, 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 and this, or a list of how many things, what are they and why are they so important? Yeah, well, first of all, and, and thank you for that question is that, you know, part, part of my work is going into organizations, colleges, sports teams, um, companies, and, you know, First off, you don't need to tell me what your culture is like. I'll be able to pick that up pretty, pretty quickly through the behaviors, through, um, through actions, how people communicate with each other, uh, how the relations are, relationships are, you know, again, that word energy, what's the energy like in that room when you walk in, do people get up and they're happy to see you and they, 
you know, they introduce themselves and you just feel welcome there, then that's a, one of the signs of a good culture, for example. Also, what they're talking about in the hallways as well. Are they uh, gossiping about the boss or what we call the water cooler gossip is, you know, you have a meeting and then two people step out and they, they go to the water cooler to, to complain about what's just being spoken about in, in, the, in the boardroom, for example. So culture really comes down to um, a set of, of beliefs, of behaviors, which determine outcomes. I'll say that again, it's your beliefs, um, which determine your behaviors, which determine your outcomes. It's really that, that simple. Again, culture is something that is dynamic every single day, like your mindset, is under attack. It's under attack by negativity. It's under attack by uh, external sources, so on and so forth. It could be anything. It could be jealousy. You know, somebody else got got that position and you didn't, and now you yeah. feel you feel. So there's so many elements to that. But um, a healthy a healthy culture comes down to uh, the having the right people there as well. So you know, are you hiring on skills or are you hiring on values first? And this is some of the advice I give to, you know, the best coaches and CEOs and people in the workplace is hire first on values. There must be alignment on values and beliefs first before skills, because skills can be taught. And I'd rather have someone that's in line with the values and the beliefs than first of all the skills. So a lot of people make the mistake of looking at a great resume. Oh, you've got a lot of experience. You went to a great school. You went to Harvard, whatever it was. Wow, we want that person. But are they able to work in a team environment? Are they able to work together with others? Those are the key factors to, uh, you know, a healthy culture. And I could go on forever yeah. with, with, with that one. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, I can totally appreciate that and, and relate to it. And I agree 100%. I also, one of the things that I've, I believe as well and is that you've got to have people in the right places. Like quite often, if you've got somebody doing a job that, you know, they may have the right values. They, they, they're in, you know, they're, they're embedded in the team culture, the, the organizational culture there. They do work well with others and stuff, but if they're sort of, if they're in a position in that organization that doesn't light them up or doesn't excite them, it doesn't fulfill that passion that eventually is going to, their energy is going to deteriorate from that. So, and then that could lead to, you know, behaviors and attitudes that sort of drop below the, the standards being implemented across the board. So do you believe it's also important that you've got to make sure that when you do recruit and hire that you're putting people in the right place for them to thrive personally, um, just as much as they thrive in that team? Absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, this, this is one of the big mistakes. And, and, and let me just get back to where, where culture starts. It starts at the top. It's, it's yep. with the leader. The, the person at the very top, they set the tone of how the culture is going to be. So, you know, some, so I always say to people, have a look at the leadership first before you look at the position as in, Oh, that looks like a great position. I'd love to be there. That's a little bit of ego talking of, I want to be in that position. What is the leadership like? What is, what do other people say about the leader? Those are very, very important questions. How do they treat their, their, their people, for example? Um, the second part of your question was um, the right people in the right places. That's massive. So let me give you a very simple example of in the workforce, for example, is you can be a great salesperson and this happens all the time and you're hitting the sales numbers every, every year and you get promoted now to management. 
you're no longer in sales, you're in management now. But do you have the management skills? Do you have the leadership skills? No, you very you you did incredibly well in sales. You know now you're promoted to a completely different position that you probably won't even like. You 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 don't have the competence for it to lead other people. You were great at sales, so there's an example of being in the wrong wrong positions, even though you excelled in 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 another position. Yeah, and you're passionate about it. Yeah, I I was kind of related to that the sort of theory of you know if you had a football team you know like and I, I go straight to AFL you know you wouldn't really play your full back at you know in the middle of the ground where they've got to chase the ball around you know you, you put them where their strengths lie you got to you have to understand what your um, your team's strengths are and, 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 and put know, them in the right and, position to, to thrive how do you get the best out of them put them where they where their strengths are at the forefront of what they're doing and, and let them do that thing. Well, you know, a great example is, you know, when Jose Mourinho went to Manchester United. Now, Jose Mourinho has worked with Real Madrid, uh, uh, Inter Milan. He's won trophies all over the world. So he's, you know, an acclaimed soccer coach and a success at Chelsea as well, of course. And when he went to Manchester United, it horribly failed. And he was like, how can probably at that stage, the best coach manager in the world fails so miserably at a club is because he had this group of players that he wanted them to play a particular way. So he was putting players in positions that they didn't really want to be in. Example, Paul Pogba and um, uh, Juan Mata and players were, uh, they, they, you know, as you just mentioned there, they were out of position. They were playing what they, you know, it's almost like someone saying to you, Paul, you know, when you were playing, I want you to play this particular game, you know, in squash. And you were like, well, I'm, I'm not really, I've never practiced that way. I don't feel comfortable that way. But the coach goes, no, you have to play this way. Yeah. And you don't feel comfortable and you don't like it. And this is what happened there at Manchester United. And obviously it failed miserably um, is that players were out of position. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that speaks a lot to to, to really understanding. You you've got to really, as a coach or a leader, you've got to you've got to dig and learn what the skill sets are of the people that you have on your team or that you're in, that you are leading and helping, um, because it's it's, it's impactful. And I, and I and I did at some stage in my career happen where I, I worked with a different coach who tried to get me to play a different way, and it wasn't leaning on my skills. It wasn't le- letting me lead, and I. In my inner hero program, a part of it, a portion of that is about what are your two world-class skills? Because there's two things that you do that are the best things that you do. So if you can kind of build your environment, build the game plan around those skills, because when you're executing your top two strengths or your skill set, your confidence goes up. Your, your, your everything, everything just rises. Your attitude changes. Everything feels better, and you probably get results. But if you're if, and that's the whole thing about plans, you know, like you want to play to your opponent's weaknesses and try and expose them, but, and, and avoid their strengths. So, but if you can get the game on your terms, if you can get the environment on your terms, and this goes for your organizations as well, if you get the right people in the right places that are, that are accessing their strengths daily, they're going to be, their confidence level is going to go up. Their, everything's going to be heightened. Their level of flow because they're working within their strengths will be heightened. Their focus, productivity, creativity gets heightened. All these amazing skills 
are going to be go through the roof. So it's like one of the number one things that I think is is really really vital and probably potentially quite often yeah. missed. I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, one of my theories always being Paul that um, the certain style of of a player has a lot to do with their personality as well. So you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if you look at, you know, let's use squash as an example. That Rami is very flamboyant, as, you know, uh, even outside of the court. You know what I mean? He's he, so, and his game was like that. You look at a guy like El Shorbaggy, He's very serious, very um, disciplined. He's like that off the court as well. You know, so I believe that your style of play is very is very suited to your personality. You know, like some of the athletes I've worked with, you know. Um, Kevin Anderson as well. He's his, his the way he plays suits his person of who he is. Yeah, we're not trying to change him to be someone he's not. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it would be like trying to take Nick Kyrgios and make him play like Kevin Anderson, or vice versa. Or, or try to act like him. You or know, act like him and behave. Yeah. Not, you know, I know we're we're throwing tennis names around here, but Gail Monfils has. You know, people always said. Gail Monfils, if he got more serious, he would play better. He wouldn't. Yeah, no. He's not playing he, to his strengths. His personality. And Nick Kyrgios as well. People say, if he got more serious, think how good this guy could be. No, he wouldn't. Because these guys need to have fun. They need to be characters. They need to be the clowns if you want to be. That is who they are. Yeah. Trying to change somebody is not going to make them better. Yeah. That's so powerful, so powerful. Um, so just before we kind of wrap it up, um, I just want to touch on I, I, you know, purpose, passion. It, it's such a vital thing for for getting. You know, I, I'm curious to know kind of what your what your north star is. What's your mission? What's your what is Alistair McCaw's purpose at this point in time? Yeah, my my purpose is actually. I believe your purpose is very closely linked to your vision. So. Um, I'm proud to say I'm, I'm, I'm living my, my purpose and my vision of inspiring as many people as possible to help them find their, their purpose, number one, um, to live life uh, in a meaningful manner as well, that there's, there's you know, you wake up with uh, a game plan, so to say, say to your day. So it it's really is that simple, to inspire many, as many people as possible to find their purpose, because I believe finding your purpose is one of the most powerful things to to, to uh, why you get up in the morning because Absolutely. you know talk about life is flow you know it's ups and downs it's a wave you know you can feel great and then boom all of a sudden a pandemic hits you know um, I would say that if I did not have purpose I probably would have been really really struggling right now I really believe that no matter how strong I am and what I've done and written books if I had no purpose I probably would not be in a good position right now mentally yeah, i think that's i think you're on point with that absolutely yeah I, I i wake up each day and i'm excited to add value to people if i can put it that simple how through exactly what you're doing right now a podcast writing another page of a book posting something inspirational on facebook or whatever that is my my purpose is to add value that gives me uh, a great uh, sense of accomplishment for the day yeah, yeah, I love that, and 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 the value you, you do add to to your community and people around you, and is phenomenal. And you've been a big big inspiration of mine, and and a big uh, 
a mentor and a, and a great friend. But um, my last question for you, what are your high flow activities now at this point in your life? Like what's the thing that you can get into that you, you know, outside of your speaking and your, your main core of your business and, and your, and your mission, what are the things that, um, that kind of light you up that potentially no one else knows about the things you love doing that you might not, that might not sort of hit the mainstream of anything. You know, I'm going to surprise you and probably some people listening to that, to this. I, I don't think I've found it yet. Wow. Interesting. And so it could yeah. be salsa dancing. It could be salsa dancing. <laughs> it could be, there could be Saturday night live coming up very, very soon. But no, I mean, I have interest. I love beach tennis. I love, uh, to be to be around friends sometimes. I like to watch my favorite, you know, soccer team Liverpool or whatever it may be. So I have interest, yeah. but I don't think I've found something that lights me up. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing. I mean, I have things that I enjoy doing, and and you know, one of my talking about purpose is my work as well, which which I love. What I, I love what I do. I love my work. Uh, you yeah. know, um, I don't see it as work, but. It's a very good question is I don't think I've found something that lights me up yet. Okay. So what, what would be your biggest recovery activity? Like, you know, flow and work ethic, like pushing the limits, you know, with peak performance is, is an expensive task on your, on your body and your mind. Um, you know, when you, when you're doing your workshops, your, your seminars, you're talking and you might be doing full day workshops day in, day out. Like what are the things that recharge you to get back to that energy level to present the next day? Um, you know, what's, what's your number one tip for recovery? Well, I'm a terrible sleeper, so I wish I, I could sleep better, to be honest. Um, really, my, my sleep is, is terrible. I, I don't sleep for more than two hours at a time and I wake up. And, um, but here's the thing. I'm always thinking. I'm always, you know, and they're good thoughts about, I should, you know, they're always just exciting thoughts. So that uh, I, they're not bad thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I love being around good people, um, good friends where I can be myself with that gives me a recovery. Uh, you know, you're not sitting talking about work and talking about, you know, other things, but I think that's my therapy. That's my recovery in a way, you know, um, of my recovery. My, my therapy is, is talking being able to be with people that you trust and you're able to, you know, offload with. I don't know if that answers your question. If you were looking at something maybe like um, no. stretching or yoga or meditation. Or well, I think, like um, well, I mean, look, uh, it was an open question. Like what's yeah. the thing that recharges you the most and, 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 you know, uplifting socialization is one of the most impactful um, forms of recovery. It takes our mind off the, off the grind. It takes our mind off yeah. the things It really switches us you can get into a wrapped conversation with somebody about, you know, the, um, that, that common ground that you find that thing that you kind of, there might be beach tennis, you know, like we could have a conversation about beach tennis that literally yeah. takes our mind purely onto this. What's beach tennis about? Like, how does it, how does the ball bounce? Like, you know, we can have this conversation, conversation, but in that moment we are now, we're, 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 we're not so focused on the, the things that really take more of our energy and, and we can, you know, it's, it's, it's an important part of recovery. And I don't think people realize that. I never realized that, that 
you know, being sort of thinking I was more of an introvert, you know, I wanted to stay away from people, but that uplifting, that socialization thing is so vital. And, and we're becoming hyper aware of it now through this pandemic, that deep connection with others is, is such a major part of our well-being, and, and our well-being needs to be at the forefront of our intentions, as you um, suggested at the, at the start of this podcast. Um, how intentional are you being about your well-being? And, and recovery is a huge part of that, and being okay with taking some time off, you know, having that downtime. Massive. I mean, you know, just even just having this conversation with you gives me energy. You know, I, I chat to obviously Brad, you know, who's a good friend of both of us, Bradley Hindle, I chat to him. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that gives me energy that, that, that because there are people like you that I enjoy, you know, seeing and, and, and speaking with, for example. So in a way that's my recovery from everything else, you know, um, yeah. I, I would say that, you know, I, I like to run as well where I do most of my thinking. I know yeah. it's not a, I know it's not a recovery exercise because it's, uh, you know, because it is exercise. But for me, running is, is, is not because of just the body element. It's I'm, I'm just able to, I'm, I find I'm creative when I run. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of scientific evidence coming out now that that is the thing. Like quite often we will make connections. Our pattern recognition will, will link together when we're off exercising like an exercising inducing what they call transient hypofrontality where our kind of our sort of you know sort of prefrontal cortex kind of switches off a little bit and we're allowed to just sort of you know sense of self disappears our inner critic goes quiet and we're able to just really connect and this is where i find that we find links you know you quite often hear stories of like i came up with that idea while i was in the shower yeah or while i was running or while i was doing crossfit or while i was doing this whatever Something, you know, we come up with our best ideas generally when we're not doing the thing that we're trying to come up with ideas for. Well, you know, just to give one tip is I do keep a pen and paper next to my bedside table because I will, I will because I, I, I think a lot when I sleep uh, and you will not remember it in the morning. So I write it down. I, you know, well, sometimes at 3 a.m. in the morning, put my lamp on and just write down a line of what I'm thinking and go back to sleep and, um, because you won't remember it and because your body is at rest, you know, talking about recovery, it's able to process, it's able to think. Honestly, I do not come up with ideas sitting at my office desk. I feel, I feel stagnant sitting here. I feel, you know what I mean? I have, you know, for example, um, I'm thinking of, of, and I've done this before, going away in two weeks time, booking a hotel somewhere, uh, flying off for five days to be in a different environment to, so I can write, so I can think of other things. I sometimes feel I become stagnant in my house. Yeah. Being creative. Yeah. Novelty novelty is a big flow trigger and getting in different environments, different places. You know, I, I actually was a guest on a podcast yesterday and we're talking about this, about novelty and just, you can get sort of stuck in the rut of the same things over and over. And if you want to change that up, just drive, drive a different way home from the gym or drive a different way to the gym, like go a different route, ride your bike instead of, driving or walk or whatever, like do something different to create a bit of novelty, but travel is huge on that. But yeah. look, Alistair, I am super grateful for your time. I appreciate you so much. You're, you're such an inspiration and um, an awesome human being. And I love what you're up to. I love um, chatting with you. I love being a friend of yours. And um, is there anything you want to leave, leave the listeners with as, and, and, and I guess in terms of where we're at as a, 
a community as a whole right now in a global uh, pandemic. Yeah. What's, what's one thing that can improve the day for somebody that you would recommend? Well, before I get to that question, I want to acknowledge you back for obviously being a great friend and being someone that's important for me in terms of consistency. You are who you are. So I appreciate that, that of you. Um, so, you know, uh, thank you. And obviously thank you for inviting me on, onto your show. I feel honored as well. So, and I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. No, thank you, man. I appreciate it. To answer your, your second question about what is one thing I can, I can leave others with, you know, we've spoken about gratitude, which is, you know, one of the most important factors to, you know, life, for example, but I think it's, it's, it's having a belief in yourself to get rid of, you know, you will never get, you will never get rid of fear and doubt. I believe that's a human need. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, people, we need people, it. Get rid of fear and doubt. No, you, you don't just get rid of fear and doubt. But I want to say is, you know, is, is belief is one of the biggest factors in terms of, of how far you can go. It's a belief factor. You know, Jeff Bezos be, believed that Amazon would become what it was. Um, you know, if you speak to an Olympic champion, they believed that they would be there, for example. And, you know, we all have that in us, maybe not to be an Olympic champion or to be the wealthiest person in the world, but I think we limit our beliefs. I really believe that. So that would be one of the things I'd, I'd, I'd want to leave you with. To raise the glass ceiling on the belief. Love Absolutely. it. Love it. Yeah. And where can, where can we find you? How can we find your books? How can we find uh, you online? Where do we find you, mate? Thanks so much. Yeah, Twitter at Alistair McCall. Very simple. Uh, Facebook, Alistair McCall page. Instagram, be champion minded. Um, the podcast is on iTunes, YouTube, or go to alistairmccall.com. And the books are all on Amazon. So those Beautiful. are all the, all the areas, yes. Beautiful. And I'll, um, in the show notes, I'll make sure that I've got all the links and, uh, and all our material so that people can, uh, can hook up with you, connect, and uh, highly recommend following Alistair. Mate, it's been awesome. I know we've gone a bit over time, but I value your time so highly and I appreciate you. And uh, thanks so much for being one of my very first guests on the Flowcast and uh, look forward to catching up with you soon. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for dialing into the Flowcast. I hope you took away some valuable insights to make your challenges and journey a little more epic. If you'd like to learn more about how we can help you find more flow and upskill your vision and mindset, check out our flow programs at www.inspiredpeakperformance.com. Thanks again for sharing your valuable time with us and please feel free to share and subscribe to the Flowcast. Until next time, Get out there, find your flow, and create your own inspired peak performances daily. Mm -hmm.